This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about Today, my message is really simple. It's a really simple message. Um, we are going to see two lists, and these two lists are going to sound like this. He's going to say that there are acts of the flesh, and he's going to give us a long list of those acts, and they're pretty ugly, and we're going to have fun looking at those. And then he's going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And so I've got a two-point sermon. Can you guess what the two points are? Acts of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Just going to unpack those things and then get on out the door. But before we do... We'll have to have a conclusion as well, and the conclusion will be, how shall we apply this information about acts of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit? So pretty simple, and we'll finish chapter 5 today, and we're almost finished with this series. But before we begin, let me just do a quick introduction, because all that we covered last week is dependent, or all that we'll cover today, I should say, is dependent on what we covered last week. It's, it's connected, we just divided it in half, so I need to kind of recap what we said last week. Last week, we talked about the whole book is about freedom, we know this. All of Galatians is about freedom, and that freedom climaxes in chapter 5, verse 1. The central verse of the whole book is verse 1. It says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has given us freedom. That's what it literally says in the Greek. So freedom is the beginning and the end of our salvation. It's the beginning and the end of our relationship with Christ. Jesus wants you to be free. And so it is for freedom that Jesus is giving you freedom because he wants you to be free. In fact, Jesus said the same thing himself. He said, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. So same, you know, two words in that one sentence, freedom. Jesus wants us to be free. But Paul says here, stand firm, therefore, And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And I think the reason why he says that is because he knows that we all have a tendency to drift off of that freedom. And some some of us fall off this way. We fall off and we we don't believe that God's got our best efforts at, at mind. We don't believe that God is actually... He's holding back from us, we think he is. And so we, we pursue our own satisfaction and our own desires over here. And so we slip off of freedom and then we get um, enslaved to our addictions and, and enslaved to our sin. Some of us drift off of that freedom foundation by slipping this way and forgetting that it's by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And we create lists of things we have to check off. I read my Bible, I go to church, I tithe, I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl. And then we slip into works of the flesh Um, instead of the grace alone, faith alone, gospel. So Paul says, I want you to stand firm, do not drift. And then last week, we covered this difficult text where Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And so when we slip off of that freedom foundation, it's because of our flesh. 
And the word desires is epithemia, which means an over-desire, a super-desire. It's the one thing that you long for. Typically, it's a good thing. We all typically long for good things. I want to be a good mother. I want to be a good father. I want to be a successful businessman. I want to be a good provider for my family. Or, or even to bring it down a little bit more personal, I want people to like me. You know, I want, I want to be healthy. Those are good things. But if that's your over-desire, as an example, let's use this one. I want people to like me. It's not a bad thing. It's, you know, of course you don't want people to not like you. <laughs> it's a good thing for you to want people to like you, but because you're pursuing that thing, it produces works in our life which are pretty bad. For instance, if you really want someone to like you, you'll get envious if they like someone more than you, and that's a sin. If you really want someone to like you, you'll get jealous if someone walks in the room and outshines you. If you really want someone to like you, you'll get ticked off if they don't like you, <laughs> right? And so when we pursue this thing, it produces sin in our life. So the desires of our flesh produces sin. But then Paul says, but the desire of the spirit is against the desire of the flesh. And the desire of the spirit is one thing and one thing only. Uh, Jesus tells us that the spirit will come and dwell inside of us to point us to Jesus. The spirit will come to declare to us what is Christ's, and that which is Christ is the cross and the finished work on the cross and the gospel. So you may pursue this. I, I'm, I don't believe that God will satisfy me, so I'm going to pursue my own satisfaction by making people like me over here. And then the Spirit says, no, 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 no. I want to point you to Jesus. Jesus can satisfy you. I, I don't trust that God's going to save me. I feel like I need to prove it by working harder and doing better and being gooder. And, G, and the Spirit says, no, 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 no. Point to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We ended last week by saying the key to the Christian life is that Christianity is not a religion. It's not do this and don't do that. It's a relationship. And the more you're in a relationship with Christ, the more you'll begin to look like Christ. The more you try to look like Christ without that relationship, you're just going to miss the mark. You're going to miss it. And so I must decrease so that he might increase. I must stop pursuing this epithemia so that he might increase and my affections will be for him. And so in our missional community, we talked a little bit about what is our epithemia and I've I cut the sermon off last week so that we could have a whole week to kind of wrestle with what is my super desire what is it I long for and all of our missional communities we talked about it and I'm learning that most of us really don't know we we know what the sin in our life looks like I've got these sins but we really don't know why those sins are produced what is it that I'm really longing for what is that what is my psychological spiritual longing that I need and, and I'm wrestling with mine, too. I'm getting closer to what it is. I think I figured it out, but then it gets deeper. I'm like, no, no, it's actually probably more about my, my innermost longings that create this sin in my life. And it's important that you figure out what that is, because we'll see today that if we don't know what our chief affection is, we can't replace it with Christ. Instead, what we'll end up doing is trying to manage our behavior, which isn't going to fix anything. It doesn't. I mean, if you have been able to manage to fix your behavior, I'm proud of you. But it's still there, and it's going to reach up and bite you probably on Tuesday or Thursday, right? It will. So let's, let's look at our text today, and we're going to see two things. Paul's going to describe for us what it looks like when we pursue our epithemia, what the acts of the flesh will be. And then he's going to describe what it looks like if we pursue the Spirit, what the fruit of the Spirit will be. Pretty fascinating. Now, this next text is going to be pretty gruesome and ugly, so if you're under the age of 18, please close your ears. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a hard verse, is it not? Now, Paul says in this verse, the first thing he says is that the acts of the flesh are evident or they're obvious. When someone is acting in a fleshly way, it's pretty obvious. Wouldn't you agree? With the list that he gave, it's like, yeah, that's not a very spirit way of, you're not walking like a very good Christian. What I want to do is just look at this list a little bit and then talk about it. So most commentators will tell you that this list can be broken into categories, and I'm going to categorize them for us this morning as well. And the first category has to do with sex. And there's three things he says. There's sexual immorality, which I think is interesting. The Greek word is pornea. We live in a country today that knows quite a bit about sexual immorality, wouldn't you say? We've kind of lost our minds when it comes to sexual immorality. Um, impurity literally means unnatural sexual practices and unnatural sexual relationships. And sensuality, which another word that you might have in your Bible, in the NIV says debauchery, which literally just means uncontrolled sexual passion. So there's three words that all have to do with sexuality. And tell me if you think I'm wrong. When we're in church and the pastor is preaching and shares this verse, and says those words, you sit there and say, mm-hmm, that's bad, that's immoral, that's a work of the flesh. And you might even be tempted to say, and point maybe somewhere in the direction to California, don't you do this? And say, them people out there, them so, they're so sexually immoral. But you know what, we cannot do that, can we? No, we cannot do that. They'll just point right back at us, because you know as well as I know that the statistics within the body of Christ are extremely high unbelievably high. I did youth ministry for 20 years, and so I was very familiar with the, the, the rampant disease of pornographic addictions. I don't know the statistics. I don't want to embarrass myself or you with these the statistics because they're constantly changing, I'm sure. But it's horrible. How about adultery and divorce within the church? And so we can't point our fingers to them out there. Oh, man, television has got this world going to hell in a handbasket. No, you are just as evil as they are. Because when you're over-desire, and I don't know what it is, but you have an over-desire where you're seeking satisfaction here, it will produce in your life all kinds of sexual immorality. Well, let's get off of this because I'm getting hot up here. All right, let's move. The next one is uh, religious activities. He says idolatry and sorcery. And by idolatry, he doesn't mean... Um, your epithemia. He doesn't mean, you know, replacing Jesus with something else. He literally means idolatry. So worshiping of a god or of a statue. Um, or sorcery or witchcraft or Satanism. Let's keep going. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. One commentator, no, many commentators have said, this next list can be people in the church. In fact, one commentator went so far as to say, I believe that this list, this little list right here, is found more in a church group than in any other group in the world. And I read that and said, huh, I kind of agree. <laughs> kind of do. I've grown up in the church ever since I was five years old. I've lived and breathed church people. <laughs> 
And can I tell you, I've seen a lot of enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. So again, Paul's not saying them out there. He's saying when you pursue anything other than Jesus, it will produce this kind of fruit, this kind of act in your life. I want us to notice in this list there are two, actually different, you can, you can categorize it in two ways. You can say some of them, four of them, are attitudes, and four of them are the resulted relationships from those attitudes. For instance, if you have an envious attitude, it will create a strifeful relationship. And so it's, it's important to know that the acts of the flesh are not just things we do, they're also things we feel. Attitudes. Attitudes are included. Let me just rip through these real quick. On the screen, I have the ESV, um, and, and, and I'm going to say also what the NIV says. I think it's interesting. It's the same Greek word, but they just translate them just a little different shade differently. So the first one is enmity. NIV says hatred, which basically means hostility or an adversarial attitude. The next one is strife. The NIV says discord. It means being argumentative or seeking to pick fights. <laughs> Anyone like that in here? Jealousy, um, in the NIV says jealousy. It's, it means, I like this definition, a zeal and energy that comes from a hungry ego. You have a hungry ego, and it's all about me. And if anyone gets you know, anywhere near your plane, you want to, you know, I'm the king of the mountain, knock them off. You have a hungry ego. Fits of anger or fits of rage, it just means what it says, an outburst of anger. Just, <laughs> have you ever seen that in the church? I have. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Selfish ambition or rivalries in the ESV. It means competitiveness or self-seeking motivations. The next one is dissensions. Um, NIV uses the same word. It means divisions between two parties of people. Divisions or fractions. It means permanent parties or warring groups. We even see this within the church in the Bible. In the beginning of Corinthians, where Paul says, you, some of you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. They're, they were creating these divisions between parties. And then lastly, envy, which basically means coveting or desiring what others have. So again, we can't point our fingers out there. In fact, when, when those people out there make movies about us, this is how they always portray us. Isn't that true? I've just seen a trailer to a movie that's at the theater now where this is how they were portraying us. Competitive, envious, striving, dissensions. Why do they do that? Well, because we do that. That's why. Because when we are focused on anything other than Christ, our epithemia, it produces this in our life. And then last but not least, because I want to move on, um, is a category of addictions. So drunkenness and orgies and things like that. And you might be thinking the word orgy needs to go up to the first category of sex, but it doesn't. In the Greek, the word orgy literally means drinking orgies. Or it means giving yourself over to some sort of chemical. And then Paul says, and things like that. And I think that means we can put in this category things that maybe Paul didn't have in his day that we now have in ours. All kinds of addictions, all kinds of chemicals, all kinds of ways to... Let go and give yourself over to an addiction. Now, the Bible never condemns. It doesn't condemn drinking, but it always condemns drunkenness. And what happens when you get drunk? You have too much, and you do it on purpose. I know sometimes maybe you mess up a little bit, but if you're a drunk, it's because you want to come home, you want to lay on the couch, and you want to say, I want to disappear. 
I want to not be here. I want to not feel anything. I just want to let the booze take me. Am I right? Now, I've never done drugs, but I think that's probably the same thing about drugs because I've seen movies, and that's what they do, right? I just want to stick the needle in my arm, and I don't want to be here anymore. I want to float. I want to go somewhere else. I want to let go. And that's what this word orgy means, letting yourself go to addictions. I don't think we could put caffeine or chocolate in there because when I drink caffeine, I'm not like, oh, letting myself go. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what addictions are because you wrestle with them yourself. Okay, so let me just ask you this. Take a look at this list. I'll put it all up there for you so you can see all of them at once. It's a big list, isn't it? I'm going to ask you just to, do a little, just to do a little stock taking. Can anyone in this room honestly say they don't see themselves somewhere on that list? Good. Thanks for being honest. I mean, for me, I see this list. I've read this list in the Bible before. And it's very convicting. And I kind of see a mirror there. Yep. When I pursue my epithemia... These things are produced in my life. Why is it that we can be Christians and have the spirit in our lives, and every single one of you, or at least most of you, nodded or said, I agree, that this is you? One of the reasons why I think it's true is because the church, at least in my experience, has historically shifted our or taught us to deal with and manage our behavior. So you have envious, hatred, divisive, sexual, addictive problems in your life, then deal with them. And what they've missed is that you can never manage your behavior. What you need to manage is your affection. What is that epithemia? What is that desire in your life? And whatever it is, is going to always naturally, never not do it, produce acts of the flesh. And so what we tend to do is say, oh, i got to handle this. <laughs> and then when we can't, we push it in a closet and shut the door and say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> and then what ends up happening is sometime in October, we'll find out you're getting a divorce. And we'll say, well, I didn't see that coming. They looked like they were so happy. Yes, yeah, because they kicked it in the door and no one knew that he was wrestling with pornography. So the church has made a mistake, I think, when it said deal with this sin. What it should say is, it's not about a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship. Is your relationship with Christ, or are you pursuing satisfaction or salvation for yourself? Well, I read this list, honestly, and I think I don't have a problem with sorcery. (laughs) I'm pretty good at that one. (laughs) But there are some words on this list that I just wish weren't on that list. Why did he have to say that? especially in light of what he's going to say next, which scares the coffee out of me. He says, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? When I read that earlier, did you ask yourself, what does that mean? Well, I think it's helpful. Timothy Keller, I'll just share a quote to answer this question. He says, Paul's referring to habitual practice rather than infrequent and repented of lapses. So he's referring to people who are constantly living this way. They, they, they're, they're pursuing their, their desire and constantly seeing this acts in their life, these acts in their lives. For someone to continually indulge in this sinful nature without battling against it, it is to show that the Son has not redeemed them and that the Spirit has not renewed them. 
Paul's not looking to undermine Christian assurance here, but he is aiming to banish complacency. So here's why Paul says, stand firm, therefore, on the freedom. Because if we drift off of our freedom into sinful behavior, or even into legalistic behavioral modification, it doesn't change our hearts, and we still produce works of the flesh, acts of the flesh. And then we wrestle with it, and we wrestle with it, and we wrestle with it, and we never can end. And Paul is saying, you've got a job to do, and your job is to stand firm on freedom. Because we know well in this country that freedom has to be fought for, right? Jesus gave us freedom, and you have to fight for that freedom. And one way you fight for that freedom is you kill, destroy, crucify your flesh, and follow after the Spirit. If Jesus set you free, then you are free indeed. So why would you drift into this? See, the freedom is not so that we can sit on our couches. The freedom is so that we can be free to destroy our epithemia desire so that we will not have these acts in our life. If you were a prisoner and the door opened up, you're not going to sit there. You're going to get on out the door, right? So in the same way, Paul is saying here, he's, he's aiming to banish our complacency. Look, Jesus has set you free, okay? He set you free from the disease to please even. So stop worrying about where the people like you. Just focus on Jesus. And then you'll have fruit of the Spirit instead of fruit of the flesh. Look, you... you um, you have anger issues, Jesus set you free from that. Don't give in to it anymore. Stand on your freedom. Focus on Christ and you'll receive the fruit of the Spirit, which will give you patience. Paul's not saying, here's a new list for you to not do. Paul's saying, you've been set free. Don't go back to those things. So as Christians, we do have a responsibility to fight for our freedom and to stand firm, therefore, on that freedom and to not drift into sinfulness again. I would want to add to this um, that I believe that a Christian can have the Holy Spirit living in them and struggle with some of these things for a long period of time. I know people who have. And you have too. You know people. You have struggled for a long period of time with these things. An angry person doesn't become a loving person overnight, even with the Spirit. It's a gradual process. Let's move to the next point. Point two, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the first thing I want us to see is that, do you notice how Paul, again, flips his metaphors? He started off by saying acts of the flesh, and then he switched to saying fruit of the Spirit. Why didn't he say acts of the Spirit? But he doesn't, and he does it very, very intentionally. Can I tell you why? Because acts are active. <laughs> That's why they're called acts. They're active. And fruit is passive, which means Paul's not saying stop being sexually immoral, start being loving. Stop being drunk, start being self-controlled. That's not what he's saying. I know that sounds different because that's what the church has always said. Stop doing this and start doing that. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying when you pursue your fleshly desire, it will actively produce this in your life. But if you pursue the spirit, these things will passively be produced in your life. They're like fruit. He uses the word fruit on purpose because he wants us to think of fruit. What do you think of when you think of fruit? You think of botany. <laughs> no, you don't. You think of lunch. But, but you, 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 it's botany. How do things grow when it comes to botanical growth? They grow slowly. So I, I want to talk about the fruit. Let's read it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, and let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So we're going to look at this list real quick. I'm not going to unpack what everything means because I think most of them are obvious. But I want to say three things about this list. We'll see that the fruit is first, gradual, second, inevitable, and third, symmetrical. And I'll explain all those really quickly. The first one is that it's gradual. Fruit is gradual, isn't it? Anyone here got a green thumb? You plant things, yeah? What happened, you know, when you plant it and you, you're waiting for it to grow, and it's stinking slow, isn't it? And you water it, and you wait, 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 and half of them come up, and you know what I mean? You're like, come on, come on up, come on, come on. My wife loves trees, and so when we got married on our wedding day, I bought her a ginkgo tree. That's a picture of a ginkgo tree on the screen. The tree that I bought her does not look like that. <laughs> the tree I bought her looks, it's skinnier than, than two fingers. I mean, it just goes in the ground. We've had that sucker for nine years. She likes those trees because it has this beautiful green Japanese fan-like leaves. And then in the fall, they turn bright, like as bright as the sun, yellow. And they're beautiful. A ginkgo tree, by the way, lives to be about 3,500 years old. When it reaches full maturity, it's over 3,000 years old. So I look at that tree in our yard. We've had it for nine years. And I'm like, it's, it's broke. That, it's not growing. <laughs> well, I, I actually had... Alan's tree service guy come to our house and say, is this thing broke? <laughs> Do we need to get, is it sick? Do we need to get a new one? And he says, no, it's, these things take 3,500 years to grow. He's like, I would suggest, though, you planted it awfully close to your house. As it grows, it's going to destroy your house. And I'm like, in 3,500 years? <laughs> I won't be here. And I'm pretty confident the house won't either. <laughs> you know, it's already falling apart. I ended up buying another ginkgo tree last year because it was on sale, and I thought, why not? 3,500 years. <laughs> this is just like your spiritual growth, and this should be encouraging to you. you. It may not feel like you're growing, but you are. It's very gradual. You gradually are growing. You may not feel like you're becoming patient, especially if you're impatient. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Come on, hurry up. Give me some patience. <laughs> Give it to me now. <laughs> but you are. You really are. It's gradual. You are growing. As long as you are following after the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, you will have fruit, but it will be gradual, unfortunately. And, and that also leads me to the other one, which means it's inevitable. Why is it inevitable? Because it's not dependent upon your production. It's dependent upon the Spirit's production, right? You're not the seed of the fruit. The Spirit is the seed of the fruit. So if the Spirit is in you, guess what else is in you? Fruit. <laughs> it gradually will come out but it also will inevitably come out. It has to. It has to come out. I wish we could measure it. Don't you? You know what? On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm a 10 when it comes to love today. Yep, I've arrived. But we can't. We do it with our kids, though, right? You put your kids in the room, and you put the ruler there, and you draw a line. You say April 3rd, 2013, and then you do it again next month, you know, what's it? May 3rd, 2013. <laughs> And you, and you show your kids, look, you are growing. It's, it's so gradual, it doesn't feel like it, but it's also so inevitable. Look, see, you really are growing. I have proof. One of these days are going to be as big as daddy. Hopefully not as big as daddy, but you'll be as big as daddy. You're growing. This, this pastor named um, Campbell Morgan 
tells this story long, about 100 years ago. He went to an Italian cemetery to do a funeral. And while he was there, he noticed in the middle of the cemetery this big round um, slab of marble that was right in the middle of the cemetery. And he also noticed something else that was completely, you know, unmissable. And that is that somehow when they put that slab of marble on the ground, there was an acorn that had gotten underneath it. And after 100 years, that acorn busted through the marble, broke it, and split it in two. And so he uses that as an illustration to say, what do you think would win? A slab of marble or one little acorn? It's obvious, isn't it? It's the acorn. It's so gradual, but it's also so inevitable. That sucker is going to break through. And I want to encourage you. You may feel like, I'm not patient. I'm not loving. I'm not kind. I'm not good. I don't have faithfulness. But it's gradual. But you need to know that as long as you follow the Spirit, it is going to bust through all the slabs in your life. I promise you. I can promise you that because he promises us that. And then the third thing I want to say is it's symmetrical. This concept changed it all for me, and I hope it would us for you as well. Why is it symmetrical? Because did you notice that Paul does not say the fruits with an S of the Spirit? Did you notice that? He always says the fruit of the Spirit and then lists nine things. Shouldn't it be plural? There's nine things. Haven't you heard sermons on the fruits of the Spirit? I have. It's not fruits. It's one fruit. But it has nine different facets. One scholar said it's like a diamond with nine different cuts. You take that fruit and you turn it and you see patience, love, joy, kindness, goodness, mercy. It's one. It's symmetrical. You cannot have one without the other. Because if it's the fruit of the Spirit... It means the Spirit is living in you, and you have all of them. Do you see that? You can't have just one fruit of the Spirit. You have to have all fruit. You you can't have just one of the fruits, with the plural. You have to have all of the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And here's what we do. Tell me if this is not what you've experienced, because it's what I've experienced. We call them fruits, and then we list them out. Here's the list. And then we say, which one of those are you not so good at? You need to get gooder at that. And then what we've done is we focused on the one thing that we need to get gooder at, and we don't realize that the truth of the matter is that if it was a fruit of the Spirit, we would have all of them. Why? Because you can't have one without the other. Let me give some illustrations. Let's say, I'm pretty good at love, but I'm not so good at patience. You automatically have to know that you're wrong because the very definition of love is patience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It it is not easily provoked. It is merciful, right? So you can't say, I'm good at love but bad at patience and say, I need to work on the patience. No, you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. You have something else. Maybe you're just a loving person, but you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. You can't. Let me give you another example. What if you said, I'm pretty good at joy, but I'm not so good at kindness, Or faithfulness. How's that? Faithfulness. Well, you can't. Because if it's the fruit of the Spirit, you have both. So maybe what you have is a bubbly personality. Hi, I'm the life of the party. I'm an otter, right? Woo! But you're not very faithful, so you don't have a lot of friends because you never stick to one place long enough to have any friends because you're always bouncing around everywhere. See what I'm saying? It's not fruit of the Spirit. It's you have a counterfeit. Here's another. Here's one I like a lot. Maybe you can say, well, I'm pretty good at the self-control thing, but I'm not so good at the kindness thing how many of you seen a person like that i have (laughs) 
I'm pretty good at self-control, but not at kindness. Well, that's not possible. You have to have all of it if, you, if it's the fruit of the Spirit, or else maybe you just have a, you just have a lot of self-discipline. People, some people have that. Maybe you grew up in a military home. Your parents taught you how to be disciplined. Or maybe it's your Meyer Briggsness. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you scored high on C, on the D-I-S-C, control. You know people like that? They have a high controlling personality. Maybe it's your epithemia. Maybe it's your over-desire to be controlling. I know people like that. So you're, you're high control, and when you can't control people, oh, you're mad, right? And you're ugly. But that doesn't go well. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, you have self-control and kindness. So you see how this works? It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Again, the church, historically, at least in my experience, has said, instead of saying, here's your over-desire, and it produces these things in your life, it says, stop producing these things in your life, and you never can quit. It's a constant battle. It's the same thing with the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of saying, follow the Spirit, and you will naturally produce fruit in your life, the church has said, which one of these do you need to work on, and do you see where your back is? You're not even looking at the Spirit. The church historically has preached this as a prescriptive text. They've prescribed the fruit to us. You need to take an orange and an apple and a banana. You need to work harder on your patience. But it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It describes what someone who has the Spirit looks like. So we don't have to work harder at these things. We have to only work harder at one thing, crucifying the flesh and being led by the Spirit. And when we do, naturally, gradually, and inevitably, we will have all of that fruit. Do you see that? It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So you have my two-point sermon there. Acts of the flesh. Fruit of the Spirit. How then, therefore, shall we live? How can we conclude? Well, if you read the next verse, Paul tells us there's two things you need to do. The first thing is crucify your over-desire. And the second thing is walk by the Spirit. Two things. Paul always gives us those same two things. He does it in Colossians. He does it in Romans. He says, kill the old man, follow after the Spirit. Kill the flesh, follow after the Spirit. Die to Christ, resurrect in the Spirit. Let's read the verse. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its epithemia. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Um, so let me just unpack these real quickly in about two minutes. Crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. How do we crucify the flesh? How do you do it? Well, I think first thing you have to do is you have to know what your epithemia is. That's why we spent a week kind of talking about it. And we still need to, some of us still need to think about that. And you will always be thinking that for the rest of our lives. Stop thinking about, how do I stop sinning like this? And start thinking about, why do I sin like that? What is the desires in my life that produces this stuff in my life? And then whatever that is, crucify it. And why does Paul use the word crucify and not kill or destroy or run from? I mean, it would, again, he could have said, run from the flesh and walk in the spirit. Right? Why, did, why, did, why does he use the word crucify? I think he does it intentionally. And I think the reason why he does it is because he wants us to take it to the cross. He wants us to take it to Jesus. When I hear the word crucify, don't you just think of Jesus? I do. Um, when I hear the word crucify in the Bible, I'm always thinking of Jesus. And so Paul's saying, take it to Jesus. You've got an epithemia. You really want people to like you. Give that to Jesus. 
Martin Luther says, nail it to the cross. But even though you nail it to the cross, it's still alive. <laughs> it's hanging there on the cross. <laughs> still alive, kicking at you. It will never die until you die. But still give it to Jesus. Timothy Keller says, crucifying the flesh is about strangling sin at the motivational level rather than simply setting ourselves against sin at the behavioral level. Real change in our life cannot proceed without a discerning of our particular characteristic flesh, the idols or the desires, the epithemia that comes from our individual sinful nature. So the true battle that we have is not against behavior, it's about desires. Crucify your desire. And the last thing is walk by the Spirit. And Paul is very interesting. In just the six verses that we read, 16 through 24, he has given us four different verbs to explain to us what he wants us to do when he says, walk by the Spirit. I'll show them to you. In verse 16, he says, do not gratify the desires of the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. And then in verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you will not be under the law. And then in verse 25, the one we just read, he says, live by the Spirit. And if you live by the Spirit, you also must keep in step with the Spirit. So there's four verbs there. Walk by, be led by, live by, keep in step with the Spirit. It's as if he's hitting it at every angle. Here's what you do. You walk by the Spirit. Decrease your desires for the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And if you're constantly... He also goes on in, in Romans. He says... Submit to the Spirit, yield to the Spirit, listen to the Spirit. I mean, there's so many things we do. We kill the desires in our flesh, and we walk by, keep in step with, live by, elevate the desires of the Spirit. And as I mentioned last week, the only desire of the Spirit is to point us to Christ. What happens if you're following the Spirit to Christ, if you're in an intimate relationship with Christ, if you are in love with Jesus, if you're praying to Jesus, if you're walking with Jesus, what happens? Naturally, you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. So that's what we do. The goal of the Christian is to have a relationship with Jesus, not to check boxes on a list. Amen? Let me conclude by asking you one thing. I put the two lists side by side up there. The works of the flesh. There's a lot of them there. Pretty ugly stuff. Versus the works of the Spirit. And I want to remind us that we have spent our entire lives trying to battle against the works of the flesh. Have we not? Or we've spent our entire lives trying to get more of some fruit, one of the fruits with the plural. But I'm wanting just to see is that if we can fully understand the over-desires of our flesh, which we crucify, and then the over-desire of the Spirit, which leads us to Christ, how much more we have to gain. This is actually a very freeing text. It says you don't have to try harder to be patient. It says you just have to walk with Jesus, and you will naturally become patient. Do you see that? He has given us a lot. We have a long way to go, don't we? But it's freeing because you don't have to get it. He's going to give it to you if you walk with him. That's it. And can you imagine what you and I will look like if we spend more time with Christ, more time with Jesus? Pretty soon we will look like love, joy, patience, Kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. How awesome would that be? Let's pray.